In May of 1977, just as Star Wars was opening in American movie theaters and shortly after Close Encounters of the Third Kind had wrapped a long and difficult production, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg had a conversation on a beach in Hawaii. The two friends talked about possible future projects, and Spielberg mentioned that he very much wanted to direct a James Bond film. A couple of years earlier, in fact, following the success of Jaws, Spielberg had approached Bond producer Cubby Broccoli about directing The Spy Who Loved Me, but Broccoli was not receptive. Lucas told Spielberg that he had an idea that was like James Bond, but even better. And four years after that conversation, Spielberg and Lucas's collaborative effort, Raiders of the Lost Ark, hit theaters and immediately reinvented adventure movies. The film's main character, an intrepid archaeologist who risks life and limb obtaining rare antiquities, would become one of the most recognizable and imitated characters in cinema history. This is Get Me Another Indiana Jones. Nearly 3,000 years, man has searched for the lost Ark of the Covenant. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. That's something to be taken lightly. No one knows its secrets. Jones, do you realize what the Ark is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. The Ark, if it is there, Atanis, then it is something that man was not meant to disturb. It is protected by forces beyond imagination. It is desired above all treasures on Earth by those who are good, trust me, and those who are evil. I'll tell you everything. Yes, I know you will. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Let her go. We have no time. If you still want the Ark, it has been loaded onto a truck for Cairo. Raiders of the Lost Ark. A film from Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Hello, and welcome to the first episode in our series, Get Me Another Indiana Jones. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? <laughs> Why does the floor move? Those who have listened to our show previously will know that we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. This week, and in the weeks to come, we'll be examining the myriad of adventure films that followed in the wake of of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, Rob, I have to say, I am very excited for this series. It's one of the first ones that came to mind when we started brainstorming ideas for this podcast. Absolutely. Right off the bat, I want to broach a subject that is uh, kind of the elephant in the room, Chris. Oh, by all means. Every other series that we've had heretofore has been Get Me Another Star Wars, Get Me Another Batman. Yes. This is the first one where it is not referencing the title of the film. 
And I think there's good reason for that. Indiana Jones became one of the most recognizable pictures in, in cinema history, right? Yeah. You just need the silhouette of this guy with the whip on the hip and the, the fedora. Yep. And you you kind of know instantly who this is. As a matter of fact, he became such a singular character they renamed Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I refuse to say. I gotta be honest, I hate that. I know I don't want to sound I, like yes. a gatekeeper or anything like that, but the movie is Raiders of no the Lost Ark. No one's gatekeeping uh, Steven Spielberg uh, and George Lucas. It's I'm not fine. trying to. I'm not <laughs> trying to do that. Like, it, but but here's the thing. Here's why I hate the the renaming of the movie because. Indy himself, Indy and Marion are among the Raiders. It's about these dis different groups of people who are all chasing down the Ark of the Covenant. They're all kind of Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones included. My my reason for disliking it is that Raiders of the Lost Ark is a really cool title. It's a great title. Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark just is, it seems less cool to me. That's my scientific highly uh film scholarly uh analysis on that one <laughs> that's certainly fair um i want to mention i did see raiders in the movie theaters and it was initially one of two movies and i've mentioned this before on the show that I, my parents thought i was too young to see and would probably give me nightmares the other film we talked about in one of our get me another star wars bonus episodes was clash of the titans but raiders of the lost ark was re-released in 1982 and that that year i did go my dad did take me and sure enough it gave me nightmares oh yes it will there's so many good uh scare bits in this one. Oh yeah no yeah. It, it, there's times where where spielberg goes full horror for some of those sequences and it's Fantastic. Yeah, and John Williams follows his lead uh, in going full horror on the score. Uh, oh, man. Oh, absolutely. The story of Raiders of the Lost Ark actually begins a few years before that conversation on Hawaiian Beach. George Lucas, after finishing his breakthrough film American Graffiti, was working on what would eventually become Star Wars, a film inspired by the science fiction serials of the 1930s, such as Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. Lucas had another idea that drew from the serials and B-movies of his youth. This one drawing from adventure films such as Tailspin Tommy, Zorro, Spy Smasher, Gunga Din, and King Solomon's Mine. His idea revolved around an archaeologist named Indiana Smith. Uh, Indiana being the name of George Lucas's dog, who would travel around the world in search of lost treasures. Lucas's original conception of the character was a bit more morally ambiguous, as Indiana Smith would be a playboy who would fund his lavish lifestyle by selling the treasures he collected. Whoa, that's that's a little bit more early Han Solo than uh, than Doctor Jones wound up being, huh? Absolutely. And he later went on, he shared his idea with fellow filmmaker Philip Kaufman, who would go on to direct the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers, as well as one of my favorite movies, The Right Stuff. And it was Kaufman who had the idea for the object of the quest to be the Lost Ark of the Covenant. Lucas originally wanted Kaufman to direct the film, but he was unable to do so because of his commitments to, uh, to work on the outlaw Josie Wales. But following their conversation in Hawaii, Spielberg signed on to direct. To write the script, Spielberg turned to a young writer named Lawrence Kasdan, whose script Continental Divide Spielberg had recently read and loved. By the way, Continental Divide would later go on to be the first film produced by Spielberg's company Amblin Entertainment. Oh, and also, Continental Divide was a, a VHS tape that me and my friends were obsessed with in college and wound up writing a terrible garage band song about. So there you go. That's amazing. <laughs> That's the most important that thing. That is amazing. That song, also titled 
Continental Divide. Yes. Uh, Belushi, man. It was the Belushi. You, you don't you don't have a recording of that song somewhere, do you? Oh, you, you, uh, you're goddamn right I do. Yes. Oh. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, as ideas churn in my head about what, what use we could put that song... As Spielberg, Lucas, and Kasdan worked on the story for the film, certain elements evolved. The idea of the protagonist selling artifacts to fund his playboy lifestyle was dropped. All three creators felt the character needed to be vulnerable and fallible, which was a key, key point. Oh, and the character's name was changed from Indiana Smith to Indiana Jones. Apparently, Spielberg thought Indiana Smith was too close to the Steve McQueen character, Nevada Smith. Oh, I didn't even make that connection in my mind ever. There you go. But I guess I didn't because they changed it to Jones. Kasdan completed his draft in August of 1978, and several elements of this version were eventually shelved to make the production more manageable, including a sequence set in Shanghai, which would lead to a minecart chase. Ideas that would eventually make their way into Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the second film. For the role of Indiana Jones... Producers looked at a whole host of actors, including Nick Nolte, Peter Coyote, Harry Hamlin, Tim Matheson, Bill Murray, Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, and Jeff Bridges. Wow. Which is an insane lineup of, of late 70s, early 80s actors of all sorts. I'm, like, I'm trying to picture, you know. Chevy Chase is Indiana Jones, and I'm I'm not doing it. It's uh, it's a hard time. Yeah, but I I gotta say I am intrigued by Peter Coyote as Indiana Peter Jones. Peter Coyote's interesting. Yeah. Um. There there are screen tests on in in some of the 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 making of documentary that's on the DVD and the Blu-ray, and you get a little bit of Tim Matheson's screen test. And aside from the fact he feels a little too young, uh, he wears the hat wrong. Like oh. he just wears the hat wrong. It's just. But the role eventually went. To Tom Selleck, there was just one hitch. Selleck was committed to a pilot for CBS that, if it was ordered a series, would prevent him from starring in Raiders. Spielberg and Lucas asked CBS to release Selleck from his contract. CBS, realizing how in-demand Selleck was, greenlit the series, and he was forced to drop out of the film. That series, of course was Magnum P.I. It's one of the great, all-time great theme opening oh, theme yeah. songs for any television show. I love Magnum P.I. Um, and also, in the same bonus features, you, you get a screen test of Tom Selleck uh, for, for Indiana Jones. And I'll tell you what, like a lot of times with screen tests of actors who didn't get it, you can kind of see, it's like, oh, it, it, this wasn't the... But like Selleck, I think it would have been really good. Like it, it, you can tell that he could totally be indie. His screen test is opposite Sean Young, I believe. The mm. Matheson screen test is opposite Karen Allen. So they didn't, you know, they hadn't quite gotten it all together. But, uh, you know, he might have made a really good Indiana Jones. I think he would have been fine, um, you know, uh, especially given our next film, which we're not going to get ahead of ourselves. But uh, no, no. But I will say this. A lot of times you do wonder and you're like, oh, I feel so bad for the guy. He could have been Indiana Jones. But I'm so glad for for little me and for him, frankly, that Thomas Magnum exists. Yes. <laughs> One of the all-time great TV detective shows. All-time great. But with weeks to go until filming, Spielberg and Lucas still need an Indiana Jones. They turn to a familiar face. Harrison Ford, having twice played the role of Han Solo in the Star Wars series, took on the leading role. For the female lead, they looked at actresses ranging from Deborah Winger, Amy Irving, Stephanie Zimbalist, 
Barbara Hershey, and Sean Young, but the role went to Karen Allen, who had recently starred in National Lampoon's Animal House. And she is amazing in this movie. Yeah, it's odd in that you were talking about, oh, other people for Indiana Jones, and frankly, Harrison Ford, you know, iconic in the role, yes. But I can kind of entertain and go, oh yeah, I could see where Tom Selleck, you know, it would have been different. Sure. Maybe, you know, who knows what the what would have happened, but like, I can see it. I literally cannot see anyone else but Karen Allen as Marion Ravenwood. Just I, I, it, impossible. Absolutely. Impossible. Absolutely. Other roles include Paul Freeman as rival archaeologist Rene Belloc, John Rhys-Davies as Indy's friend Sala. The filmmakers originally wanted Danny DeVito. Whoa. <laughs> Ronald Lacey, who we saw in Red Sonia, playing the, the villainous Gestapo agent Tote. Klaus Kinski was originally offered the role of Tote, but turned it down to star in the horror movie Venom because it offered more money. Klaus Kinski, directed by Steven Spielberg, would have been amazing. I <laughs> hey, oh my he had to goodness. do Venom, man. They uh, they offered more money in Venom. Whew. Lucas wanted to finance the project himself, but did not have the money at the time. Most studios passed on the film because the deal Lucas presented would give him total creative control as well as retaining licensing and sequel rights. Uh, there was also concern about Spielberg's involvement due to the over-budget, critical, and commercial failure of his last film, 1941. But Lucas would not do the film without Spielberg, and finally they made a deal at Paramount that saw Paramount retaining the sequel rights and having significant penalties for the film going over budget or over schedule. I want to take a second and quickly mention 1941, yeah. because here, sitting in 2023, Steven Spielberg is an institution and an icon. But in 1980, that wasn't necessarily the case. Yes, he had made Jaws, which was a massive hit. He had made Close Encounters, which was a massive hit. But both of those were difficult productions. Particular Close Encounters went over budget and over schedule, but obviously was a big success. He then did 1941, which was an even bigger production that went that was difficult. And that movie was not successful. So Raiders was almost a comeback film for him. Like, in a sense. And and it's real interesting, because I'm not sure we get the Spielberg that we get in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark without having gone through 1941 first. If Philip Kaufman's schedule had been just a little bit different. I know. Who oh knows? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I, I do just in a totally dumb way love to imagine, um, I don't know, like eight different studio execs running studios at the, the day and age where they were like, Spielberg? No way is that kid working on my picture. He's box office poison. <laughs> I think we need to add to our list of don't get me in other movies. I think we need to add 1941 because yeah. I think 1941 was a it was not a success, but it's a fascinating movie. Oh, and yeah. the not only I don't think you get Spielberg of the 80s without being on the other side of 1941. But also, it was written by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, mm -hmm. and a lot of the sensibility of Back to the Future is present in 1941. It doesn't really work in that movie, but it would work perfectly in Back to the Future. Yeah. So it's it's one of those key movies. And Back to the Future is a movie they don't get to make if they don't have a big hit with a movie that we'll be covering, which they wouldn't have gotten to make if Raiders of the Lost Ark wasn't a big hit. Exactly. Which he wouldn't have been so hot to trot for if 1941 hadn't been a flop, also starring John Belushi, who was in Continental Divide, 
everything happens for a reason, Chris. Oh, we're now the, we're now the meme from from. I've got my murder board up from, here. From in always the... sunny, uh, it's always sunny. Filling <laughs> out the yes. meme with him in the. Yeah, we've yes. uh, we've memed ourselves. Filming on Raiders of the Lost Ark began in June 1980 and took place in France, Tunisia, Hawaii, California, and Elstree Studios in England. And it finished on time and on budget. Take that, studio chiefs. <laughs> I'll learn ya. I should say at the beginning, for anybody listening for the first time, one, welcome. And two, please know that we'll be talking about these films in depth and spoilers are going to be a part of that. So if you've never seen Raiders of the Lost Ark... By all means, please press pause and go watch it because it is fantastic. It is one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, and you should definitely watch that movie before you listen to us uh, opine about it. I just wanted to give that spoiler warning at the top for any new any new listeners that we might yeah, have. I mean, you could do it that way. Um, <laughs> I just think that our discussion is going to unlock so much more about your enjoyment of Raiders. It I mean, it's does, honestly what you should anyone, do is watch Raiders, listen to us, and then yeah, watch Raiders again. Watch it again. Yeah. yeah. Has anyone truly seen Raiders until they've heard us talk about it? I'm not sure, Chris. Well, we've not truly seen Raiders because we're just talking about it now. Uh, no. uh, the film starts iconically with the Paramount Mountain fading into a real mountain, which would become the hallmark of the series. I'm very curious because as we sit here recording this in, in June of 2023, uh, the fifth and final Indiana Jones movie is not yet has not yet been released, um, and we will. I will certainly see it. I'm curious to see what they do because there's no Paramount involved. So are they going to fade in from a Disney castle into a real castle? I don't know. Who knows? I'm just curious to see what happens. But let's talk about the opening sequence to Raiders of the Lost Ark because, oh my goodness, it is a perfect twelve minutes of film. Like it is, it is an Indiana Jones movie in 12 minutes and it is absolutely incredible. Yeah. It feels to me like, and, and with the runtime, even, even though it's, you know, not, not an unusual runtime for an action sequence, right. Sure. In a, in a film like this, but uh, the opening of this movie is one of the, it, it's a real to one of the serials right. that helped inspire this. I mean, it's yeah. it's like a mini serial unto itself. Absolutely. You get a perfect introduction for Indiana Jones. You see him from different angles, you hear him, but you don't see his face. Then one of the guides goes for his gun to try and double cross him and Indy whips it out of his hand and then you see his face. And I have to think that this was an inspiration for Steven Spielberg in in the, the opening of the first time you see James Bond, Sean Connery as James Bond in Dr. No. The circumstances are obviously different there. He's in a London casino, but it's the same thing where you kind of hear him, you see like a, you see pieces of him from different angles and then you get the the shot of his face and it's just perfect absolutely uh and the, if i'm not mistaken i think the camera's uh dollying in a little bit to him as his head's coming up with the brim of the hats lifting up so we can kind of see him yeah. his face right off the bat in addition to just the the musical score from john williams which is you know very mysterious going on as you're walking in through the jungle to where they're going but very, very early on, we know this is dangerous. Yeah. And it's not just dangerous because of where they are. It's dangerous because of what other humans are going to do. Yes. Which, even before we know, and look, I, you know, you see a trailer, you know he's after archaeological treasures of, of some kind. But in a perfect world where there is none of that, you still need to signal in your story what's going on. Just the very fact that someone's going to kill him over this 
you know, this mission going into the jungle, you know that what they're doing is dangerous and important and someone would kill for it. Yeah. Whatever it is. Absolutely. I want to mention, well, that the character of Indiana Jones was inspired by a number of different cinematic heroes from the first half of the 20th century. His look, the leather jacket and the fedora, most specifically resemble that of Harry Steele. Charlton Heston's character in 1954's Secret of the Incas, right out of that. But as much as Indiana Jones in this opening sequence is absolutely capable and cool, the movie also establishes right from the beginning that he's fallible. I mean, honest to goodness, there's no way that bag of sand was going to weigh as much as that golden idol. Come on, man. No, not at all. And while he knew that the one guy was going to double cross him at the beginning, he's not infallible in that... He didn't see the other double cross coming. The other guy, uh, who, who's the second one double cross, also played by a very young Alfred Molina. Yes, and when uh, once that idol has been taken and the uh, booby traps start getting triggered and they're racing out, oh, it's so he good. does not. Uh, you get one of the iconic bits in the movie uh, where Alfred Molina has swung across the chasm of the pit on the bullwhip, and then uh, Indiana Jones is there. Throw me the uh, idol. The whip. Throw me the, the whip. whip. Has come undone. Yeah. Yeah. Adios, senor. Yeah. Oh, it's so it's so perfect. It, it, all of this is really good. I mean, you have that. There's that iconic moment where he enters the, the temple. He does the switch with the bag, which I alluded to earlier. And then, you know, it, it's just, oh, there's this other great moment. Again, talking about perfect Indiana Jones moments just in this opening sequence. So he gets betrayed by his other guide and who takes off with the idol, drops the whip on the other side. So Indy has to jump across the chasm, right? And he barely makes it. He grabs onto this vine and there's, it's perfect. There's this smile that comes across his face as he's, as he grabs it. He's thinking he's made it. And then the vine starts to come loose and you see his face turn to, oh shit, before he, he turns himself to, he pulls himself to safety. It's it's fantastic. It is absolutely fantastic. And you get, uh, as is often the case, in the first movie you have something happen right here that they will take great pains to put in almost all of the other ones, as far as I remember, which is as Indiana rolls under the door that's closing and he reaches back under to grab his hat yeah. and whisk it away at the last minute. Yes. Uh, I think that in Temple of Doom, I think there's a similar moment. I can't there remember is. about yeah, it. There, there is, absolutely. And he keeps the hat throughout the sequel, although by the, the end of this movie, he has lost the hat. Because there's that thing that happens in the first movie in a series where the character is dressed the way he's dressed because he's the character. But later in the series, he becomes it becomes like a uniform. And it's like you see this in Die Hard, like when the first movie he's in a white tank top because when the time when the, the terrorists take over the building, he's kind of he's in the bathroom and he's cleaning up. So he'd take it off his shirt. Whereas in later Die Hard movies, well, we have to put him in a dirty white tank top. It's like, you know, the, the, the <laughs> uniform of the of the character emerges. And of course, we can't talk about this sequence without talking about the boulder, which is simply one of the most iconic shots in movie history where the boulder comes, he crosses a certain point, the boulder starts running. And it's one of those things that always, it's it's a perennial in any montage of cinema moments from like the history of movies. You always are going to have Indiana Jones yeah. turning around seeing that boulder. And then he, he, he running straight to camera as the boulder is coming behind him straight to camera about to crush him. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Indy does make it out of the temple just in time to have rival archaeologist Belloc and the Hovitos show up and force him to give up the idol. And then he runs for his life when no one's looking, barely making it to a waiting seaplane. And what I just, I love 
is that all of the elements of an Indiana Jones movie, he, he finds the object of the quest, he loses it, he gets it back, he's forced to give it up. All of this foreshadowing the main part of the movie happens in miniature in these first 12 minutes. Oh, we also get Indy's fear of snakes set up when he gets in the plane and the pilot's pet snake is in the seat with him. That's just my pet snake, Reggie. I have to mention Jock is wearing a Yankees cap. And at the time this film was made, Reggie Jackson was one of the most notable players of the Yankees in the late 70s, early 80s. Ah, this is before Reggie went on to kill the Queen in Los Angeles. Yeah. Yes, before he before he had to kill the Queen. I also want to mention the period that this movie takes place. Raiders of the Lost Ark is set in 1936, so about 45 years before what was then present day. And it's about that time between the First and Second World Wars it's it's a fascinating era to set this movie because you're close enough to the present day to have all the trappings of the modern world or a lot of them cars airplanes etc but you're still far enough away that there's a kind of historical haze and it's it's a perfect period for this type of adventure one of my favorite games to play is what would the same time distance be from today yeah you'd be talking about setting something in the 70s the early the early 70s. Yes. And and this next Indiana Jones movie, this next and last Indiana Jones movie, I believe is set in 1969. Yeah. Uh, I also It's also interesting because the, the films that inspired Raiders, those B-movies and serials that inspired Raiders, were made at that time. Like, this is the time that those type of movies were made. And it's an interesting. It's like if I wanted to make a gritty, hard-boiled detective movie and I set it in the 70s when there was a whole wave of those types of movies. Raiders, people talk about Jaws a lot, and it's true. But I mean, if you look at Spielberg, I mean, this is kind of the a, a trifecta of sorts as far as this one particular point, which is Jaws, you know, horror movie, mm-hmm. Close Encounters, sci-fi. Yep. And then the big action adventure movie, Indiana Jones. Absolutely. Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, I mean, this is the B-movification of mainstream Hollywood blockbusters. Yeah. A lot of ink's already been spilled on this, but most of it focuses on just Jaws. But the thing is, he hit all of the B-movie wells along the way here, because it's not like after Jaws, everything flipped a switch and we wound up with, you know, where we are now. It it takes time. And obviously Star Wars had something to do with the the, the sci-fi as well, the one-two punch there about that becoming a mind that would be, uh you know, tapped into but uh raiders is a whole different thing i don't know that you get the 80s action boom no without raiders i don't, I don't think you do and i want to mention that the precursor to all of those really what i think is the first movie uh, or i should say that the first movie series to do what would have been a b movie series but at an a movie level is James Bond. Oh, sure. James Bond takes what would have been B-movie material. If all of that, if Ian Fleming had been writing t- books 10, year, 10, 20 years earlier, and they'd been made into movies 10, 20 years earlier, it would have been a series of James Bond B-pictures uh, from Universal or Republic or something like that. And James Bond took what was the B-movie, what was B-movie material and produced it at the A-picture level and set the stage for all of these. So Again, Indiana Jones is the cinematic descendant of James Bond, just as Indiana Jones, <laughs> as we get to the third movie. I mean, it's so meta and it's so fa- it's just so fantastic. Uh, we should probably take a moment, by the way, to talk about that John Williams score for Raiders of the Lost Ark, because it is one of the greatest movie scores of all time. It is instantly propulsive. 
And, you know, I mean, it's hard not to imagine movies, movie music without the Indiana Jones theme, officially known as the Raiders March. It's just it's just incredible. What I most love about the his, the score in total for this is the cohesiveness. Yeah. Even though you have wildly different moods and types of 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 score. So that Raiders March, you cannot get more kind of heroic. Oh, God, I feel like I could do anything. I feel like I could do anything when listening to that music. Get you out of your seat, right? But then you have what I think what is actually my favorite uh, little bar in the in the scores. The dun, dun, dun. Yeah, the arc theme, I believe it's called. Yeah. And it's just like so perfectly mysterious, a little creepy. And yet they feel like they are in the same movie. A lot of other uh, composers will will change the mood like that, but it will feel like, oh, we've just gear shifted into a completely different movie musically. Right. But Raiders does not. It does not. It all, it all feels of a piece. Absolutely. Uh, we make it back to the United States, and we see Indy in a very different environment as a teacher and academic. We meet his friend and curator of the University Museum, Marcus Brody. And from here, we get what might be the best pure exposition scene in movie <laughs> history as the two army intelligence officers come asking about Indy's mentor, Abner Ravenwood, being mentioned in a German communique. I want to mention one of the two army intelligence officers, William Hootkins, who had played in ah. Star Wars. He was he was one of a group of American actors who lived in, in England and always got work in these big American films that shot in England through the 70s and 80s. William Hootkins is terrific. Uh, this scene is just pure exposition. Theoretically, it should stop the movie cold, but you hang on every word. Yesterday afternoon, our European sections intercepted a, a German communique that was sent from Cairo to Berlin. Now, you see, over the last two now, years, the Nazis have had teams of archaeologists running around the world looking for all kinds of religious artifacts. Hitler's a nut on the subject. He's crazy. He's obsessed with the occult. And right now, apparently, there's some kind of German archaeological dig going on in the desert outside of Cairo. Now, we've got some information here, but we can't make anything out of it, and maybe you can. Tannis development proceeding. A choir headpiece staff of Ra, Abner Ravenwood, U.S. Nazis have discovered Tannis. Just what does that mean to you, uh, Tannis? Well, well the city of Tannis is one of the possible resting places of the Lost Ark. The Lost Ark? Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, the chest the Hebrews used to carry around the Ten Commandments. What do you mean, what do you mean Ten Commandments? The... You're talking about the Ten Commandments? Yes, the actual Ten Commandments, the original stone tablets that Moses brought down out of Mount Harab and smashed, if you believe in that sort of thing. Do you guys ever go to Sunday school? Well, I... Oh, look. The Hebrews took the broken pieces and put them in the ark. When they settled in Canaan, they put the ark in a place called the Temple of Solomon. In Jerusalem. Where it stayed for many years, until all of a sudden, whoosh, is gone. Where? Well, nobody knows where or when. However, an Egyptian pharaoh... Shishan. Yes, invaded the city of Jerusalem around about 980 B.C., and he may have taken the ark back to the city of Tanis and hidden it in a secret chamber called the Well of Souls. Secret chamber. However, about a year after the pharaoh had returned to Egypt, the city of Tanis was consumed by the desert in a sandstorm which lasted a whole year, wiped clean by the wrath of God. Uh, uh, obviously, we've come to the right men. Now, you seem to know uh, 
All about this, Tanner said. No, no, not really. Ravenwood is the real expert. Abner did the first serious work on Tanis. He collected some of its relics. It was his obsession, really. But he never found the city. Frankly, we're somewhat suspicious of Mr. Ravenwood, uh, American being mentioned so prominently in a secret Nazi cable. Oh, rubbish. Ravenwood's no Nazi. Well, what did the Nazis want him for, then? Well, obviously, the Nazis are looking for the headpiece to the Staff of Ra, and they think Abner's got it. What exactly is a headpiece to the Staff of Ra? Well, the staff is just a stick. I don't know, about this big. Nobody really knows for sure how high. It's, it's, uh, it's capped with an elaborate headpiece in the shape of the sun with a crystal in the center. And what you did was you take the staff to a special room in Tadness, a map room with a miniature of the city all laid out on the floor. And if you put the staff in a certain place at a certain time of day, the sun shone through here and made a beam that came down on the floor here and gave you the exact location of the Well of the Souls. Where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, right? Which is exactly what the Nazis are looking for. Now, what does this Ark look like? Uh, there's a picture of it right here. That's it. Good God. Yes, that's just what the Hebrews thought. Uh, now what's that supposed to be coming out of there? Lightning. Fire. Power of God or something. You're to understand Hitler's interest in this. Oh, yes. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. The one thing is that Prior to this moment, everything has been super grounded in, you know, our reality, right? Sure. Look, is someone going to, you know, swim to the plane and then like while it's flying, climb up there and they're a professor and it's easy for them? Obviously, that's less grounded. But at least everything is is our world. It's our physics, etc. The way this scene and I, it's, it's obvious, it's the whole scene as a whole. I think the music plays a, a huge part obviously oh, yeah. the direction and, and the, the performances but just the way that you're transitioning from you thought you were watching this but we're going to add this other mysterious spiritual element that is kind of a wild card and it's presented as you know at this point the movie is hedging its bets are you supposed to believe that the arc is magical, and if the Nazis get it, it's game over. Indy doesn't believe. Indy does Indy's, not believe. Indy's Indy does not believe. But but you know he, he knows that you know finding the Ark of the Covenant from a from an archaeological point of view from an academic would would that would be the find of a lifetime. Another thing I do want to mention, I'm sure that there's a million video essays about this. Another thing about <laughs> this scene because it is it does take time, right? Yeah. It's it's a it's it's a long exposition scene. One of the the neat tricks is getting Indiana Jones to go to the chalkboard. Yes. And then also coming back to the book. So yeah, you are in a single room. The two government guys are essentially seated the whole time. Yeah. So it's a lot of time to do coverage, Yeah. but by the simple act of changing Indiana, what you wind up doing is you change all of the setups to cover it. And it gives the visual impression of being in a different space. Not that you think they're in a different room, but you are seeing different 
backgrounds. You're seeing different shots. Yeah. And so it's covered like it's a completely different scene almost. We should talk for a minute about the Ark of the Covenant itself and the fact that I'm going to say it. It is the greatest MacGuffin in movie history. It is it is so perfect, you know, that that over the course of this series, we're going to watch a lot of movies where they're searching for one lost treasure or artifact or another. None comes close to provoking the kind of fascination that the Ark of the Covenant does. Even the MacGuffins in the later Indiana Jones movies don't have quite the same allure because there's this tiniest, tiniest spark of what if it's real? What if, what if it's all true and there's more to life in the universe than what we can see? What if it is a transmitter, a radio for speaking to God? Yeah, because I think in um, Temple of Doom takes place before this one. Yes, it does. Uh, which does create problems with in- Indiana Jones being such a skeptic at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost there's Ark. Not but a whole lot, but there's there's not a that. whole lot in Temple of Doom that's overtly magical. Yeah, the stones glow when they're brought together, but it's not quite so... Well, he can rip hearts out uh, with magic well, powers. You know, and could, anyway, could happen. But we're, I'm, I'm going to let that one slide. But what <laughs> I was, was going to say is that this is the one where you do feel, for lack of a better term, at least I do, you feel the the kind of mysterious spirituality of it all yeah. in that it's not just, oh, the enemy might get a dangerous weapon or, oh, you know, uh, someone's going to use this to, to take over the world, right? Yeah. That's present here. And that's why the government men are, you know, concerned. Because an army that carries the Ark before it is invincible. Yeah. But you get that moment when they're packing with Marcus and you get one later with Sala where their concerns aren't limited to just, oh, the Nazis might have a giant weapon. They kind of get into, should men mess with this stuff? We weren't meant to know the power of God. We weren't we weren't meant to be exposed to this sort of thing. And you get more of a forbidden knowledge component yes. that I think is is not as present in in other films. No, the, absolutely not. No, it, it, that is absolutely 100% true. Yeah, he had the, the conversation after this with in Indy's house with with uh, with with Marcus and then you have a layer conversation with Sala where he he you know he says it was something man was not meant to disturb. Indy Indy goes off uh, to search for Abner Ravenwood who he believes has the headpiece of the staff of Ra. Unfortunately, Abner is dead, but his daughter Marion with whom he had a falling out with Abner is not. And you have this great introduction for Marion with the drinking contest, which is so it's just so perfect. It's not only a fantastic character introduction but it is one of the rare planted seeds at the beginning of a story that you you have absolutely no idea that this is going to come back and matter. Like the the fact that this comes back and matters, you have n- I, I, there's just no way that you think the drinking contest is going to be a key plot point later on. And yet it is. As it happens, you'd think that that scene was put in there to set up the later scene with her and Belloc, but it's actually the reverse that this scene was first. And then later that scene with, with Karen Allen and Paul Friedman built off of this scene and was largely improvised by the two actors when they were shooting the film. And see, I mean, that actually makes a ton of sense to me because the best moments like that, you should be building off of who are the characters, how have we set them up, and 
what would they do in this other situation that we've now put them in? That That's actually fantastic. I love it. Uh, Indy gets a second amazing introduction. Some characters don't get one great introduction. Indiana Jones gets two in the same movie where you get a silhouette on the wall as he enters Marion's bar. And as you said before, if anybody else but Karen Allen as, as Marion Ravenwood is impossible to imagine. Like she's so good. And she's just, she's just perfect for that role. Uh, by the way, uh, the the name Ravenwood apparently comes from a side street off of Beverly Glen that Lawrence Kasdan would see driving coming down uh, over uh, from from the valley into the into the the city side off the, over the hill. Oh, fantastic! I wondered where it came from because there's also a Ravenwood Apartments. Uh, oh yeah, that are in the city, but I get but not in that area. So it's good to know. I'm, I, there's a part of me that is a little sorry that subsequent Indiana Jones adventures didn't just have Indy and Marion together, like going around the world tracking down stuff. Like that, they kind of went in a different direction. Obviously, she would come back to the series uh, later, but a part of me is sorry that it was it didn't become a two hander. Me too. Uh, but, you know, I, Karen Allen is just so fantastic. I I just really don't know what else to say. Yeah. Uh, no, absolutely. She is, you know, the, it's she was like channeling a, a little bit of that Catherine Hepburn quality as far as uh, just being a strong, capable woman. And yet, unlike a, a, some actresses who may do that, there's nothing about her performance that actually outwardly is Catherine Hepburn. At all. She's not imitating Catherine Hepburn or Carol no. Lombard or any like those, no. you know, it's she's just like the late 70s, early 80s, mid 80s version of that kind of character. But it's all her own. Yeah. And another, um, you know, some actors disappear in roles. Some actors are you always kind of get their personality. I, I would put Heron, Harrison Ford in that second category. Sure. Right. It's it, Humphrey Bogart. Absolutely. Uh, Karen Allen also is like this. You always are getting. I feel like I'm always watching a version of Karen Allen, but it's like so charismatic. And I, I don't know. There's like a magnetism there. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We uh, we get the bar fight in Nepal. There's there's we're introduced to the Gestapo agent Tote, played by Ronald Lacey, who apparently had quit acting when he got the job on Raiders. He had become an agent and then went back to acting. And uh, was, of course, would later be in uh, Conan. The, uh, no, he was in Red Sonja. I almost said Conan the Destroyer. He's in Red Sonja playing basically a similar role to Toad. Yeah, he's in Caladan the Destroyer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And apparently Spielberg hired Lacey because he reminded him of Peter Lorre. That's who he was kind of going for, for that role. Oh, I see it. Um, I see it. And you get the great fight in the bar. We get one of Pat Roach's two roles in the film. One here, he's the giant Sherpa who has Indy pinned to the bar in the whiskey moment. Uh, and then later, he's the big German mechanic who fights Indy near the flying wing. He also appeared in Temple of Doom. But alas, his role was cut out of Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade. Really? Yeah, he oh, was supposed that's, that's too bad. He was going to fight uh, uh, Pat Roach on the Zeppelin. Oh, that makes sense. And then we're off to Egypt, where the rest of the movie basically takes place for the most part. Indy and Marion meet Indy's friend Sala, who is one of many professional diggers who have been hired by the Germans in their effort to find the Ark. But he's really on Indy's side. And I want to ask, this is my, how many kids does Sala have? Because, man, there's a ton. There's a ton running around. Big family. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to guess that maybe some of this is extended family. <laughs> you know, nieces and nephews. Um, but... 
also, you know, one of the one of the great voices. Oh, uh, yeah. John, John Reese Davies. Davies, one of the yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We get this, a, a great series of chases through the streets of Cairo. Uh, uh, we have the, the basket scene, which is terrific, and yeah, uh, you know, the, there's the shooting of the of the swordsman comes here, which originally there was going to be a big fight with the, Indy with the whip and the swords with the sword, and there are outtakes of that and some of the making of, and it's 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 all just it's all just so. It's just so good and so much fun. So well done. I just want to be cranky old man here for a second. Oh, please. I'm not that old, but I can be extra cranky to make up for it. (laughs) No, the the basket sequence, when I was watching this again for, you know, in advance of this, I was struck by how simple it is. And yet it's wildly inventive, right? It had to have a cool conceit, which is, She's hiding out in the basket from the bad guys. The monkey who's, you know, catches her, alerts the bad guys. They go off with the basket. Indy sees it. And then he chases after them in the little alleyways. Then you round that corner and you're in a market where everyone's carrying a basket that looks Everyone's exactly the got same. a basket. This is, it's like a hundred baskets. Yeah. And you get that pause and then he's like tipping over all of the baskets, right? And it's like, oh, can he find her in time? And it's such a wonderful and, and very, and like, you know, not like a uh, horror movie tense, but it's a tense, thrilling sequence. Sure. And you would never, ever see that in a blockbuster movie today. Because now with uh, the technology that you have available and, I, you know, expectations have been set, you know, when you can do literally anything on screen. Yeah. There seems to be this tendency to increase the visual complexity and add more, 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 more. I, uh, and this is the cranky old man part, <laughs> with with rare exceptions, I don't remember the action sequences in modern movies much. Yeah. Right? And I, I won't call them out. There's a, there are obviously a few significant exceptions. The John Wick series, yeah. I would say, is an that, exception. That stairway and, fight from uh, Atomic Blonde, which was out of the yeah. same school. And, and oddly enough, I will say, even though these are like big CG movies in their own way, uh, The Fast and the Furious, I do remember those action sequences. My cultural they're, blind they're, spot, Rob. My cultural blind spot. Oh, dude. You, you, you at least have to just go to YouTube. The Fast <laughs> Five, The Bank Vault Chase. I want to. I want to do the uh, whole series proper. Yeah. I'm going to do oh, okay. it. It's just. It's just my yeah. pop culture blind spot is the Fast yeah. and Furious series. But in, in any event, this movie and the basket sequence being one of them, you know, the boulder running away from all of these different things, they are, they are simpler, right? Yeah. They're not. They're not cheap. No, they are, no, like no. They were doing real stuff, and and they are visually complex in the way that they're being shot. But the action itself is rather, you can wrap your mind around it. You can wrap your mind up around what you are seeing. And it has to be, there's a level of inventiveness that they have to have, even though they are playing in a big budget land here. Yeah. Um, and I, I just, it, it creates iconic and memorable sequences. I, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. There is There is something to be said for limitations and then the creativity to work around those limitations. I absolutely, you know, when, when anything is possible, uh, I think it, it, it almost, it, it's almost a handicap in some ways. I, I know in others it's not, uh, but that's, I, I do, I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. And I am not a cranky old man. I'm very pleasant. <laughs> Indy and, and Sawa eventually do find uh, the map room, I should say. That, that's first, they make their way to the map room where they learn the location of the Well of Souls. What's so interesting about the scene in the map room is it feels like magic. 
but it isn't. There's nothing that happens in the map room that is overtly magical, but there's something about the way the music and the imagery comes together that it feels like magic. And it's it's so powerful. Like that map room music, so good. And it's it's one of the key scenes that shows us how smart Indiana Jones is. Yes. And they don't use a single bit of dialogue to do it. It's just all, and it, it's helping to build the tension, but those shots of like, He's brushing the dust away, the yeah, sand where to away, put the, looking where to put for the, the, the staff of Ra. And then he's consulting his little book yeah. and, you know, all of this stuff. And it's just, you're seeing him work out what he's supposed to do as it's in the lead up. Yeah. And it's just such a great little, a great little bit. And and then it's followed by a scene that I want to talk about a little bit, because I think it's a really significant scene in the movie, where Indy finds Marion tied up in a Nazi tent, and he declines to rescue her, knowing that they would start to look for her. It's I think it's one of the pivotal moments of this movie where Indy he may be forced to choose between Marion and the Ark, and what is he going to choose? It's terrific. I think it, I think it's the 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 midpoint of the movie, to be perfectly honest. And I would argue that if this was just about the Ark of the Covenant as a museum piece, he would have taken Marion. Yes, I think this is the moment where we, as the audience, now start to go. He kind of believes. Yeah. Whether I don't know that he's admitting it to himself, but I think right. after you've gone into the well of the souls, while it isn't explicitly magical, it's kind of magical. Yeah. Right? The map it's, room. The map it, room. It, yes. The feeling, it, yeah. The map room. Yeah. yeah. Not the well of the souls. You're right. But uh, in that map room, um, you just after that, he's he's come out. You could do the whole rebirth metaphor thing. He's now kind of a believer. And, and I think you're exactly right. He's not admitting it to himself, but he's he's starting to feel it. Then we get to the Well of the Souls, where Sala and Indy open the Well of the Souls on a storm-filled night. And you have that great line, Indy, why does the floor move? <laughs> oh, it's so, I mean, and, and again, they set up the snake thing earlier. It's so perfect. It's all evocative and unsettling. And the reveal of the arc, sometimes it's okay to not show a thing. You want, you know, to, to keep it in mystery, to keep it shrouded in, in, in kind of, you know, it, it leave some to the, the, the audience member's imagination. Let the audience do some of the work. But sometimes... You want to show the Ark of the Covenant in all of its glory, and they do it here. The design of this—it's oh. just one of—I mean, it's amazing. It's 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 an iconic. I mean, I guess it's it's very large, but you would still call it a prop. I think it's not yeah. set deck. Yeah, no, it's uh, prop. Yeah, you're, for you're sure. handling it. Yeah, and it's um way that just the the shade of gold that they use, the way that they even under the in the middle of this darkened tomb yeah. lit only by a few torches on the ground but you still get all the light glinting off of it totally uh i don't care if it's motivated or not it looks awesome it's great it's great while indy and sala are finding the ark we also have this great scene with belloc and marion which which i mentioned earlier that a lot of that scene was improv by karen allen and paul freeman the goal was to find a reason for marion to put on the dress and it's so interesting that they cut back and forth between the discovery of the Ark and that scene with Belloc and Marion, and they keep cutting back and forth. It's just a super interesting way to tell that story. Absolutely. And it, it makes sense where where they both of those you know lines wind up inter intersecting at the end. But it also, uh, this scene has what I remember as one of the biggest laugh lines in the movie, 
And it's a visual joke, which is as uh, Marion gets Belloc drunker and drunker, yep. but she, of course, isn't getting drunk. And then she's got the knife and she's trying to escape. That's the exact moment that Tote comes in. Tote comes right? in. And then he uh, gives his takes off his big leather yep. jacket, hands it to uh, his buddy. And then he takes out what in the 80s you would have been conditioned to think is some sort of like S&M nunchuck device. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, what's he going to do to her? And then he just goes, shoot, shoot, shoot. And it's the coat hanger, yeah. a portable, collapsible coat hanger. Funny story about that is that Spielberg originally was going to do the same bit in 1941, uh, where a German officer played by Christopher Lee is about to interrogate a character played by Slim Pickens. And he does the same gag, but it didn't work. It didn't just it didn't work. And it was cut from the final film before being used here. Well, there you go. Every uh, silver lining. Keep yeah. keep working it until keep working the gag until it works. Just as Belloc found Indy after recovering the fertility idol in the opening sequence, he does so here again, and he takes the arc from Indy, leaving him and Marion trapped in the well of souls. And this is the sequence, Rob. Mm-hmm. This is the sequence that gave me nightmares for what seemed like weeks when I was a kid. It is. There's all the mummies surrounding Marion. There's that one shot. There's one shot of a snake coming out of the mouth of a skeleton. And this is Spielberg in full horror mode. Yeah. When, uh, cause Indy crashes through the wall. Crashes through the wall. And then Marion is left alone and we stay with Marion. One of the very few times that we're, um, in a scene that Indiana Jones is in. Yeah. Where we then go away from his POV. Yes. Obviously we were cross cutting when, you know, Marion was with Belloc or things like that. But this is this is a, a physical location Indiana Jones is in and we we leave him or he leaves us. And then when she goes in and it's uh, just the laughing skeletons all oh, piling at her. Oh, it's it's it was it was admittedly a little too much for me when I was like, you know, six or seven years old. Like it was it was a little too much. They escape the well of souls. We have the there's the fight near the flying wind. And then we get. The truck chase, one of the greatest action yeah. sequences of all time. Uh, we should mention that a great deal of this scene was shot by second unit director Michael Moore. Uh, and 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 Spielberg talks about that. It was the first time he really turned over a significant sequence in a film to a second unit. I think it might be the signature Indiana Jones action sequence. I know there's more complicated things in later movies, but this it's just, it's perfect, and it highlights perhaps the most important quality of the character, which is his sheer determination. Yeah, I, um, for me, it's definitely, like, top five cinema car chases, right? No question. I, it's so no hard, because it's so, they're so different. Um, you know, you got Bullet, you've got... Uh, French Connection, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. But in any event... This is also, it's got all of Indy's qualities in miniature, right? Yes. It's got, it's got that he's smart, but it's got that he isn't invulnerable. It's, you know, um, you believe, and by showing how hard it is, right? You almost, you get to believe that it's, this is literally one guy fighting like what? Three or four Nazi cars and trucks full of, of soldiers. Yeah. It's ridiculous, uh, you know, <laughs> on its surface, right? But you have those moments where you're like, well, one of them did get through and shot him and the other guy. And then, you know, the other guy's like punching him in the, the bullet wound. Oh. You're like, and then they throw it and he throws him through the window over the hood of the car. Then it's he throws like, that guy through the same window. <laughs> but, yeah. I love it. So it's it's not like it's easy. So it 
it also adds to the believability of something that is inherently unbelievable. So it, but also the, at the end of the day, it's totally badass. Oh, Just, it is. It absolutely yeah. is. We get, after that, we get a brief break. They recover the Ark. We get the brief break as Indy and Marion leave Egypt on, on the Bantu wind. And we had that great conversation between Indy and Marion with the, the famous line, it's not the years, it's the mileage. And, and one of the great, I don't even have a term for this, so it's going to sound terrible. <laughs> one of the great starts as not a kissing scene, winds up as a kissing scene. Yes. Scene. Just like the, she's like taking care of his cuts and bruises and he doesn't want it. And then he falls asleep because he's just so tired. So tired. Oh, God. Yeah. I also want to mention the great moment where we see the Ark in a crate that the Nazis had put it in, in the hold of the ship. And if there's one moment that sort of really starts to sell you on, it's the humming. The rats won't go near. And the swastika on the side of the crate starts to burn away. And it's so like it, it, it's perfect. It's, it's one of the, it's just, there's so many perfect moments in this movie. And not long after the Nazis arrive in a submarine, they board the ship. India is nowhere to be found, but they take Marion in the Ark. And this leads to one of my favorite moments in any movie mm-hmm. ever. When the, the the captain and the first mate are searching the ship, trying to find Indy, and you know, he's like, I, I can't find him. The first mate's like, I can't find him anywhere. He's like, Well, look again. I found him. Where? There. And you see Indy climbing up the side of the German sub. The Indiana Jones theme kicks in. It's amazing. It's just it every time I see it, it just it's just incredible. Yeah, I know it's a great moment. I still don't I'm, I guess that the island was very close, so it didn't really fully submerge the sub on the way there. He rode on the periscope. There's deleted scenes yeah. where you see him like the periscope is still up and he's like so he's hanging above. on yeah. the periscope. The sub, by the way, built for Das Boot, I should mention. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's that's how he get they 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 didn't lower the periscope all the way, so that's that's how he gets there. And you know, it's not far. It's it's in the Mediterranean. Yeah, they're going to Nazi Mykonos. Yeah. <laughs> Dear Lord. Then we have the third act on the island where Indy tries to blow up the ark with a rocket launcher, but he can't pull the trigger. And then we get the scene. This is this is what we're waiting for. The Belloc and the Nazis opening the ark as Belloc insists that they do it there before bringing to Berlin. And it's so interesting that once Indy puts down the rocket launcher, like he's got them in the canyon, the same canyon that they used, by the way, in Star Wars, where R2-D2 is going, that's the same the same locale in Tunisia. Ooh. He puts down the, the, once he puts down that rocket launcher, he's basically sidelined from the climax of the movie. He and Marion are taken out of it. They're tied up. There's nothing they can do. And it's, it's the arc. Belloc opens the ark and inside they find just sand. And there's this moment where Tote starts laughing because presumably he thinks it's it's a fake. But that doesn't last long because we start to see the mist and light and 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 the power of God. And presumably the power inside the ark turned the stone tablets to sand over the millennia. That's my my interpretation of what 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 they find. Again, I said this before when it came to revealing the ark and it's even more true here. Sometimes it can be good to not show everything, but sometimes you need to go and full out depict the power of God on film. Yeah, I mean, this is so interesting. And I know, uh, you know, it was a joke a few years back, but also uh, that, you know, Indiana Jones didn't do anything in the movie and it would have ended the same way. But, you know, to just be serious for one second. Yeah. 
which is that even forgetting all of the there were differences and, you know, Indiana Jones wouldn't have wound up with the Ark if he hadn't gone to look for it. Marion would almost certainly be dead. Yeah, Marion would be dead. There, there's all kinds of things that would have been different. But um, just from a dramatic standpoint, most people in the modern context talk about Deus Ex Machina as being terrible, right? But at the same time, this is classic Greek dramatic stuff. I chalk it up to Sturgeon's Law, which is that 90% of everything is crap. And when you do that, when you do Deus Ex Machina poorly, yeah. there is almost nothing worse. But it doesn't mean that it can't be done well. And frankly, the fact that no one really even thought about this for 30 plus years uh, <laughs> until until they started to poke fun at it. I'm like, I think they did it all right. You yeah. know, I think it works here. I remember when I was a kid, I had the record album for Raiders of the Lost Ark, like I did with Star Wars, where it was just, it, it was it was essentially an abridged version of the movie and and the, uh, you know, and the sound effects and, and dialogue and listening to this sequence, because there's no dialogue, basically, you know, except for, it's beautiful. Yeah. Ah! You know, like, it, listening to this on the record album was so fascinating. And it's just, oh God, this movie's incredible. Indy and Marion do survive. We cut back to Washington and where the Army intelligence officers assure Indian Marcus, that the Ark is being studied by top men. And then we have a final scene with Indian Marion, which was a reshoot filmed at San Francisco City Hall, written at the last minute to give Indian Marion some closure with each other. Originally, it ended. Uh, and then, of course, the final, final scene where we have the Ark crated up and stored in a government warehouse along with tens of thousands of other things. Uh, it's all, I mean, you've talked about some perfect movies. I think this might be. It's it might be perfect. It's just it's one of those movies yeah. I can watch yeah. over and over forever. And like Jaws and Star Wars before it, Raiders of the Lost Ark was an overnight sensation. Indiana Jones became an iconic movie character instantly. And obviously there'll be four more Indiana Jones films, as well as a live action television series, books, comic books, video games, any else thing you think of. Kenner produced a line of action figures in the early 80s, which I had some of them, and including the Well, the Souls playset, which meant I had a toy Ark of the Covenant. And I, I have to say, I mean, this is my opinion. I don't know if any of the subsequent Indiana Jones movies ever quite reach the pinnacle of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's, it's so good. And don't get me wrong, I like the other Indiana Jones movies. In particular, I like the, the original, the 80s Indiana Jones movies a lot. But I don't think they ever quite lived up to Raiders. And it's not that they didn't intend to make more films. A lot of times sequels don't live up to the originals because they make a movie. It's just a movie. And then they try to figure out what a second one was going to be. This was always intended to be a series of Indiana Jones adventures. But Raiders is so incredible that, it, in effect, they excelled themselves into a corner. Yeah, because you talked about with the James Bond series in the past – the third movie with each new Bond is kind of where they have totally figured out what this Bond is going to be. Yeah. They got this one right off the bat. Right off the I mean, yeah, contrast it with James. Dr. No is a terrific movie, but there are a few people who would argue it's the best of the series. There was room to grow. There was room to evolve. And there's just something so mystical about the arc in particular. I think the unintended consequence of, being, of Raiders being so good is it really made a follow-up difficult. Yeah, for sure. And the arc itself, uh, as you said, one of the all-time MacGuffins. And it, it, there is that sense of mystery that I feel it's the first time when you're like entering yeah. from the regular world to a mystical world. And it, every subsequent film, we're kind of starting from 
it's mystical. You kind of know what yeah. it is. You know, they they tried to to sort of do, undo that a little bit by having Temple of Doom take place before, but it doesn't entirely work. The success of Raiders of the Lost Ark kicked off a wave of adventure films that tried to capture the same tone and style. Many of them involved seeking a lost artifact or treasure, but not all. And many of them were set in the early 20th century, specifically the period between the First and Second World Wars, but again, not necessarily all of them. What they all have in common is an attempt to recapture that spirit of the Saturday afternoon serial that Raiders so brilliantly and effectively harnessed. One of the first films that came out in the wake of Raiders of the Lost Ark starred the man who was very nearly Indiana Jones himself, Tom Selleck. This is High Road to China. Take an adventure you'll never forget. And hold on to your seats. Tom Selleck and Bess Armstrong are taking the high road to China. Let me get this straight. There are people trying to kill us. The adventure takes them halfway around the world. From Istanbul to Waziristan. From India to Kathmandu. You will be my welcome guests for dinner. Does that mean he's going to eat us or feed us? Too soon! You're dropping him too soon! Take the high road to danger. Or ring your scrawny little oh, neck. Yeah. Go on, do it! Do it, do it, do it! Take the high road to romance. Tom Selleck and Bess Armstrong in High Road to China. Take an adventure you'll never forget. The first thing that hits you when you're watching High Road to China is that Golden Harvest logo at the beginning. This is one of a number of U.S. co-productions that Hong Kong studio Golden Harvest produced over the years. And it is an interesting and eclectic roster of movies, ranging from Cannonball Run to Megaforce to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's it's just a fascinating collection of movies. Yes, I uh, was very excited to see it. I did not remember that this was a Golden Harvest co-production. Uh, it makes <laughs> yeah. a lot of sense when you watch the movie and the locations. This film was written by Sandra Weintraub and S. Lee Pogaston, and it was based on a 1977 novel by Australian writer John Cleary. And I want to mention that this film was in development before Raiders of the Lost Ark came out. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that is true of several of the films we'll talk about in this series. And it's not uncommon. If you listen to our Get Me Another Batman series, you'll recall that a number of other comic adaptations were languishing in various stages of the development and then were greenlit quickly after the success of Batman in 1989. High Road to China was originally going to be directed by the legendary John Huston. Whoa. With Roger Moore and Jacqueline Bissett 
in the leading roles. Houston and Bissett left the project. Sidney J. Fury was later going to direct a version of it with Roger Moore and Bo Derek. And it's, I mean, it's easy to imagine that John Houston doing this movie, given, yep. you know, his filmography with Treasure of the Sierra Madre, The African Queen, uh, and one of the best adventure films of the 70s, pre-Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, The Man Who Would Be King. Yeah, I mean, that would have been something to see. Eventually, Brian G. Hutton came on board and Tom Selleck and Bess Armstrong were cast in the lead roles. The film also stars Jack Weston, Wilford Brimley, Robert Morley, Cassandra Gava, and Brian Blessed. The film takes place in the mid-1920s and revolves around heiress and socialite Eve Tozer, who is living the, in swinging Istanbul. I guess I guess in Istanbul was a swinging town at the time. Eve's wealthy father has been missing in the Far East, and she learns that his, his business partner is planning on having him declared legally dead, which would basically put an end to her, her high-living lifestyle because she wouldn't have any money. And she sets out to find her father and bring him back, and she only has 12 days to do it. I want to mention the actor who comes and plays her a lawyer who comes and tells her all this is Michael Shear, yeah. who was Admiral Ozel in Empire Strikes Back. He also played Adolf Hitler in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, no way. And he was in my maybe my all-time favorite Doctor Who story, The Pyramids of Mars with Tom Baker. I believe the character's Charlie yeah. is her lawyer who helps out a few points. Although in my notes, I, I wrote him down as Evie's floofy guy. <laughs> The first thing I want to say about this, I do love the production design of this movie. I think that in the 70s and 80s, they really had uh, just an authentic sense of film set in the early 20th century. And this movie is no exception. I love the look of this movie. Yeah. And, and the look and even the score, this movie feels like it is more 70s than 80s. Yes. Right? Yes, it does. It, it, it's got that kind of quality to it. And that and this leads into, you'd said this was in development, but before, I didn't yes. even need to know that. To While watching this, I was like, oh, this is one of the classic cases of something that was on the shelf that's kind of adjacent to the zeitgeist. Right. And they pull it off the shelf and try to sell it as something that it's not. It feels closer to the man who would be king than Raiders of the Lost Ark in terms of the way the film is made. Yeah, and and even when you look at like, I mean, and we'll get into this, but they clearly tried to reshape the main character of O'Malley, played by Tom Selleck, to be Indiana Jones-esque. But the story has nothing to do with an Indiana Jones film, right? Right. Nothing at all. There's no archaeology there's no artifact there's no macguffin no it's not a big thing it's literally will this heiress get a company and money taken away from her or not that's like there's nothing less indiana jones than that <laughs> yes yeah you did mention there's a great score by john barry um and and anytime i hear a john barry score i can hear in it the echoes of the many James Bond scores that he did. In particular, I, I caught parts that really reminded me of the music from On Her Majesty's Secret Service. I'm like, would this would this kind of be the, a George Lazenby Indiana Jones movie? I'm not sure. Oh my sure. God. Like, yeah, I could actually see ah. George Lazenby in this. Like, he did yeah. a lot of Golden Harvest stuff. Like George Lazenby did a number of Golden Harvest pictures in the 70s. I'm surprised that it didn't end up with George Lazenby in High Road to China. That would have been fascinating. In order to find her father and retrieve him in time, Eve is going to have to fly there, fly to, to the Far East from Istanbul. And to that end, she hires Patrick O'Malley, a former World War I flying ace who has fallen into alcoholism. O'Malley and his loyal mechanic Struts have two biplanes, Dorothy and Lillian, named after 1920s movie stars, the Gish Sisters. 
this movie has a couple of things working against it, Rob. And, <laughs> and we might as well just get into it. First, the, the filmmaker simply can't capture the thrill-a-minute stunts of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, honestly, few films can. That's a tough act to follow. But here, the action scenes feel positively languid. There's a car chase early on where the agents of Bentec, uh, uh, the, the Bradley Tozer's business partner, are chasing Eve through the streets of Istanbul towards the airfield. And I felt like it was just the slowest car chase ever. Yeah, it was it was positively Austin Powers-esque. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, in even the opening where you have like the title cards and you just have like this gentle music. Yeah. Uh, it, it feels like you're going to be getting into almost a romance as opposed yeah. to any sort of an adventure. Like, yeah, like an out of Africa kind of thing. Newsflash, this is not a romance at no. all. No, no. They, they have, they think that they have that element, but. Uh, but they do not. They no. absolutely do not. Um yeah, I mean, that's it. I did. I, I, one thing I think I, I, that the film did really well, there are is some beautiful aerial photography in this film with the shots of the biplanes flying over landscapes. It, it, and it is genuinely gorgeous. A bigger issue than the stunts and the, and the action, and you alluded to this a moment ago, is the main characters. Now, at the outset, Eve and O'Malley feel a bit more self-centered than their counterparts in Raiders. For her part, Eve undertakes the adventure because she doesn't want to give up her lavish lifestyle. Her father has been missing for several years by this point, and she's only going to find him now because her source of income is in jeopardy. Yep. <laughs> I, uh, I, the defense rests. Uh, I, I've, got nothing, I've got nothing to say against that. Um, yeah. And O'Malley is basically taking the job solely for the money. And the first time we see him, he's drunk in an alley in a way that seems almost deliberately to try and make him an anti-Indiana Jones. And he gets punched out for being with some other man's wife. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like they're doing what was that early conception of Indiana Jones as the playboy uh, an alcoholic, because there was that was one of the the, the ideas that Lucas had turned around. Would he would he you know battling alcoholism? But they eventually decide not to go in that direction, and it's probably for the best. Right from the get go, Indiana Jones is good and competent. He can't skate through stuff, right? He has troubles, but he's yeah. good and competent. O'Malley is good at nothing. <laughs> <laughs> like he's you know he's very good at drinking, but um, oh, he's, like, not, he's he's a terrible drunk. He's a real asshole. Like, he turns into a real asshole when he's a mean drunk. Now, like, here's the thing. That these characters start out somewhat selfish and unlikable isn't necessarily a problem. Sure. It could set the stage for the characters to grow and develop over the course of their adventure together. There's a movie there. The problem is they don't. And I really didn't like him any more at the end of the movie than I did at the beginning. I might have liked uh, O'Malley less uh, (laughs) at the end because they've been through so much. And like, oh, you should know better. Uh, And we'll get to the last line of this film. But that one in particular was just like, I cannot believe. And it's, uh, oh, man, I you can see someone's like, oh, we're going to have a rascally Han Solo type. Except there there's no redeeming qualities. And then there's no movement. Yeah. (laughs) It's like a, it's like a, if Star Wars Han Solo flies off with his reward at the end and doesn't come back. Yes, yeah, he's a <laughs> he's a real Talon type. I, I kept thinking of Talon ta- from Sword and the Sorcerer. <laughs> it, you know, honestly, we've been doing this this podcast for a while now, and it's funny how certain like there's certain 
patterns that emerge where it's like, oh my goodness, High Road to China is to Raiders of the Lost Ark as the sword and the sorcerer is to Conan the Barbarian. It's amazing. Yeah. And you have a little bit of the star crash in that his refusing, O'Malley's refusing of the call goes on way too oh, long. Oh yeah, way and long. Then, and then he accepts the call only for bad reasons. Uh, and then those bad reasons almost don't change like for the whole movie. It's a very Liabe seeds kind of a thing. <laughs> O'Malley and Eve fly off with O'Malley's mechanic Struts, who's played by Jack Weston, who was also Rogers and Clark's agent in Ishtar, as well as the owner of the resort in Dirty Dancing. He's one of those great character actors with, uh, you know, with a great face. And I'll tell you the other thing that this movie needs. This movie needs a map. Now, I know that Raiders of the Lost Ark basically utilized the ideal movie map convention, and you wouldn't want to copy that exactly. But I think for a, a movie that's about a journey, it is important to know where your characters are and where they are going. We're told that the last place that Eve's father was seen was Waziristan, which is on the border of what is present day Pakistan and Afghanistan. We see them take off from an airfield outside Istanbul, and when they land, they're at a British army camp in Waziristan, and there's no sense of how much time has passed or the distance they've traveled. They're just there. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this movie leaves out things that would be helpful, and, and things that wouldn't necessarily cost a lot of money, either. Yeah. In that scene where Evie's proving that she can fly the plane, right? And she, O'Malley's in the back, and yeah. she's flying the plane. Struts is down below. Uh, they play it as a joke where Evie's doing all of these incredible aerial stunts, and then Struts is thinking that it's O'Malley flying, right? Yeah. And then when they get down, uh, O'Malley's all like, whoa, right? And, and it's a joke, but it would have played better if they had simply had reaction shots of O'Malley in the plane. Right. Like being uncomfortable or like getting tossed around or being sick because he's got, you know, he was drinking all night. Whatever it is, you don't get any of those. No. And and, and thus the joke doesn't really play. And here, the passage of, of time and distance, um, you don't really get a sense because while this is movie, a movie that ostensibly has characters going to all these exotic locations, right? Yeah. They all look the same. Everywhere they go is a field and maybe there's trees and then there's a, a, a village and they all look the same. Like th- th- That's because they were all filmed in Yugoslavia. Yeah, I believe it because it just all feels the same, which contributes to that. There's no sense of, of movement. Someone else we should talk about in this movie, we should mention before we go any further, is the character of Bentic, the business partner of Eve's <laughs> father. <laughs> you mean Dr. Claw? Yes. <laughs> Because you just keep cutting back to genteel Dr. Claw, who never, never meets up with any of our characters. Never. He never learns what happens. Like, he jumps out of the movie. He's played by British actor Robert Morley. There's, like, this weird thing where the movie, like, it's it's sort of, like, I, I feel like a lot of his material must have been cut. Because it's so, there's like a random running bit where he keeps objecting to his underling's tie. And and then, you know, like he comes back with no tie. He's like, where's your tie? And it's like. When he tweezered his <laughs> underling's nose. <laughs> like, he he literally grabs the nose with a tweezer. And in my mind, I'm like, you know, there's a version of this in a Coen Brothers movie that's <laughs> genius. I don't object to trying the nose tweezer bit. But man, oh man, it. It feels like I'm watching you can't do that on television. Here. I like 
Yes. And there's no sense of menace to him at all. Oh, no, no. None. None whatsoever. He's your big bad guy, and, and there's no sense of menace at all. And and honestly, the movie kind of forgets about him after a while. Like, it just kind of it kind of just stops. Their next stop, they arrive at a British army camp, and the, they spend the night there where Patrick O'Malley turns into a mean, mean drunk. Yeah. Although we we get we get my, my favorite bit of O'Malley and a, what I thought was a really nice scene from Tom Selleck, which is the 12 kills bit. Oh yeah. And I think that's in this camp. Yes. Yes, that was. It, it's, it's the first moment. And then they, uh, where I thought, Oh, they're going to show me why O'Malley is a good guy and how, how he's going to, this is going to be the turning point for his character. Spoiler alert. It's not, but the scene's fantastic. It's a, it's, it is a good moment. And there is the, the basically the, the British soldiers are asking, he's, he apparently had a legendary world war one aviator career. And they, they said you had like 12 confirmed kills and they're all gung ho about it. They're all like, what a hero. Yeah. And he's like, no, this is terrible. They, these were children sent to war by an army that had nobody else left to fight for it. And it's, it's, and everything gets quiet and you can see he's haunted by the fact that he killed, you know, like 12, 15 year olds or whatever it is. Yeah. It feels like the beginning of, of a turn of like, Oh, here's how we're going to develop this character. Yeah. No, 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 it, it, it doesn't come up again at all. Like it's just, I was really excited because a, it's a good scene and B I was like, Oh, okay. Now they're going to turn it. And then that that made me, I think, extra frustrated that they didn't. Yeah. The next stop after that oh. brings them into contact with the Waziri forces oh. of Suleiman Khan. Oh no! Played by Brian Blessed. Oh dear God! Now I love Brian Blessed. Yes, he's fantastic, and he's playing a role very similar to that of Flash, Flash Gordon, Gordon, baby. But honestly, Rob, he should never have been cast in this role. And I think we need to take a moment to talk about sort of the trope of white actors playing non-white roles because it is front and center here. Now, that said, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, you have John Rhys-Davies, who is Welsh, playing the Egyptian character of Sala. But I feel like in that movie, it's less in your face, whereas here, Suleiman Khan is such a big over-the-top character that it almost feels caricaturish. Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about tertiary characters, you're probably almost always trafficking in some kind of stereotype, right? Sure. And that's even if there aren't aren't issues like we're discussing. Uh, it's just they're, they tend to be more one-dimensional. Whatever stereotypes might exist with Sala and Raiders of the Lost Ark seem to be, you know, on the more benign side of things, right? Yeah. He is clearly a good character he we're supposed to think of him he's he he's capable he does capable things and etc absolutely um here uh all of the stereotypes are quite negative like wildly negative yeah you know the only thing that you could say is that it's less racist because o'malley also participates in these wildly negative things in this sequence as well which is a whole other thing uh all relating toward the the treatment of women um oh my goodness if raiders of the lost ark was being made today you wouldn't cast john reese davies in that role you would find an actor of the appropriate ethnic background to play that role. totally again we're not trying to hold films of the past to the standards of today but here it's so over the top that it's tough to not think about it i mean he's got a line where it's like my people are angry at any white face and i'm like dude you have a white face (laughs) like yeah the the terrible stereotypes don't even work because of who they cast right yeah 
yeah, it it's yeah, mind-blowingly just weird and and not good. It, it yeah. yeah. And now that said, we haven't even touched upon the other the other third rail, which is the treatment of women in high road to China. Rob, I think you might have some thoughts on this. Well, I'm gonna. So in this scene, right? <laughs> it's insane. He O'Malley and Evie have landed in the midst of of their territory, right? And the Khan comes up with all of his men, and he is only not only going to not help. Why O'Malley thought he would help, I have no idea. But Khan is like gonna like run them out, probably kill them, whatever. How? Oh, how? This is one of those classic moments of your hero has to do something to then win this person over and make them an ally. Uh, and what does he do to win over the Khan? He hits Evie in the face. Smacks her so hard that she falls to the ground. Um, and this is not like a plan that they had. He just does it yeah. so hard that she falls to the ground. And that's how the con accepts him. Now, that's one thing to have the character do that. The movie treats it like it's a hero moment. Yeah. Because then you just kind of so, cut to yeah. the banquet and it's like, oh, he won him over. Excellent. I mean, it even there's actually a line afterwards where he, where I, th- I think it's the con says, I see you know how to treat women. And it's just like, oh, this is, this is just bad. This is bad. <laughs> this is all, all bad. And the whole the whole Evie can't talk thing is like a runner throughout uh, yeah, all of this area. It becomes a thing where it's supposed to be cute. And she can't look at anybody like, and speak. like, oh. Like, oh, it's, it's, yeah. I, I, and listen, again, we, we are not necessarily trying to hold movies of the past to the, the standards of, of, of modern times because that's an impossible task because standards are always evolving and that's as it should be because hopefully we're getting better as people but this is just not good no matter what era it was made yeah i mean just from the the standpoint of it's one thing to have certain kinds of racism and sexism in old movies and you know do your best to contextualize and you know right some some folks you know i i understand you can't look past it and i you know you don't want to watch that I'm totally cool with that. Here, it's just so like baked into terrible story points that it makes for bad scenes. Yeah. Like and, and, and a bad overall story arc. Like, there's just no era in which I think, and you could look at some of the old Hollywood stuff too, which I'm sure that this is thought it was aping. There's just no world where smacking a dame around uh is gonna get me on the right. side of your hero. Right. Right. And I and I realize that happened a lot in older movies that they and that's I'm gonna guess what the impetus was here. Uh I'm you know. But this is also not a movie made in nineteen thirty-five. It's a movie made no. in nineteen eighty-three. I mean, so and and while that may be different from a movie made in two thousand twenty-three, it's it's still I don't know. It's just it's all kind of off it's the sword and sorcerer of Indiana Jones knockoffs. Yeah. And you just look at how Indiana and Marion are. Yes. You know, Marion does stuff. She is helpful. Indiana respects her. Yes. You know, and look, do they put her on the same level as the hero? No. You know, he's the hero and she is, you know, hero, you know, B, right? If he's 1A, she's 1B, you could say. Absolutely. In this movie, it just feels like they're trying to create that kind of dynamic but really all they do is just have them like fight and bicker and do these incredibly 
awful and petty things to each other. And and they don't evolve. They're just, they're still fighting and bickering towards the end in the way they were fighting and bickering towards the beginning. So it hasn't gone anywhere. It's one thing to have characters that don't get along early on and give them somewhere to go. We are going to see that in other movies we will talk about in this series. But to, to just have it be that's that that's sort of what all that happens. There's no evolving relationship. I'm like, well, where's the story? Well, I know where the story is. Oh, when you've gotten to this point, you go that clearly act three should be a totally unrelated riff on the seven samurai magnificent seven. (laughs) That has nothing to do with anything. Yes. The, The con claims that Eve's father is dead. And But a slave woman named Alyssa tells them that, in fact, he escaped to her village from which she was captured, uh, which is in Nepal. I want to mention the slave woman Alyssa was played by the same actress who played the witch in Conan the Barbarian, the one who he who he has a, a rendezvous. Yeah. And uh, and then, you know, and then she's she, she goes all all witchy before they can try and get away. The Khan wants O'Malley to use his plane to attack the British. But O'Malley turns the tables and bombs the Waziri. So I guess, yay, colonialism is also part of it, too? Like, oh. Well, and this oh. is the first moment that uh, O'Malley and Evie kind of are like, yeah, because they've both killed a bunch of Waziris. And they're like, hey, yeah. we're not so different after all. Uh, they fly across India to Nepal, where they find Alyssa's village. Uh, Eve's father is no longer there, but now he may be in China, which means they'll have to fly across the Himalayas. Uh, Evie gets sick. Although I'm not exactly sure why. I think it's really just to set up the moment where she wakes up next to O'Malley, who actually was nice to her, and but she assumes he took advantage of her and she attacks him. And it's at this point that I'm starting to think, I just don't like these characters. Yep. <laughs> and then they, and then they inst- it's just like so sitcom-y. It's just so sitcom-y yeah, in the yeah. worst way that the way that whole seat little bit works. And- uh, they're attacked by a plane uh, hired by Bentic, who the pilot of which was played by Wolf Collar, who played Dietrich in Raiders. He was the one of the one of the main Germans, and this leads to one of the best action sequences in the film, where O'Malley goes head to head with the attacker in a dogfight. Although there is a moment before he get, takes off the place, like O'Malley shouts at Evie, there are people trying to kill us. And I'm like, dude, that wasn't obvious when they showed up, when she showed up to the airport with gunmen on her tail. I'm like, how how is this a revelation you're having two thirds of the way through the movie? Yeah, I mean, it's it, again, it's just fake conflict between these characters. I mean, I, at this point, I, I around here i'd written uh it's been about an hour and a half and o'malley and evie haven't changed at all and are still yelling at each other for bullshit reasons yeah uh, like yeah. what what are we doing here they fly over the himalayas um which admittedly they have some nice aerial footage although it's weirdly desaturated for some reason i don't know why um they they never give quite they never lean into the danger of flying over the himalayas that like uh, oh wow! If they have nowhere to land, so if they have problems with the plane, they're just dead. And they never, they never like bring up that threat. They never raise the threat level. In nope. That. And there's never problems with the plane. This guy had to travel with his mechanic, who never mechanics anything. No. And then when <laughs> yeah. they have to leave the mechanic, well, they leave him behind in Nepal. Like, oh, and like, then you're on. like, oh, they're gonna have a mechanical problem. It's gonna be tough for them to get over that. Nope. All right. They make it to China, and sure enough, they find Eve's father, Bradley Tozer, played by legendary actor and Quaker Oats spokesman, Wilford Brimley. 
this is the youngest I think I've ever seen him look. And, and I've seen things earlier than this, but for some reason, he's just got more vim and vigor here. I'm not sure why. Yeah. I, I actually thought he might have given the best performance in the movie. Like, I, oh, I actually really liked yeah. him as this sort of eccentric guy. Basically, Bradley Tozer has become the de facto leader of this village, which is under siege from a local warlord. And he refuses to go with uh, O'Malley and Eve because he won't leave the villagers to die. And it, it's really interesting. There's got one of the best lines in the movie. There's battles got to be fought. This may be one of them. And, and I really like that. It's It sort of means that Evie and O'Malley have to stay behind to, to defend the village. Basically, it's saving Private Ryan. <laughs> but honestly, O'Malley doesn't even intend to stay. He never makes like that decision to stay. Like, we should help these people. It's Eve who takes off in the plane before he can stop her. And which is interesting because what it does is that like Raiders and for completely different reasons and in a completely different way, the protagonist is largely sidelined during the climax. Yeah, except this time like the protagonist wants to be sidelined and only just wants to get paid money. And I didn't sign on to help these poor people. I just yeah. was going to fly you to get your dad back. So pay me. Yeah. <laughs> He's still there. He's still yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, and on top of it all, it turns out that the entire trip didn't need to happen. We learned from Bradley Tozer that if he were dead, Bentick would inherit the company, but Eve would inherit all the patents, which is where the real value was. So now there's an element of that that's, you know, you had the power all along, but we never really see the, the the significance of it. And we never have a moment where Bentick discovers this because by this point, the movie's totally forgotten about him, you know, and his, 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 his toadies nose hairs. They, they messed up because if you have a Dr. Claw, I need the next time gadget yes. when they find out that they <laughs> lost. And we totally don't get that here. Yeah. It's so then we, we have the battle at the end. I, the battle of itself is 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 pretty good, um, but you know then uh, you know we're, they're supposed to buy this romance between O'Malley and Eve. They kiss because that's I guess what has to happen. But I never I never ever got the sense that these characters generally were attracted to each other or liked each other in the least. Why would you say that, Chris? When uh, and I have to set this up. I forgot to when we were there in the in the in the what the Waziri camp before. Uh, the young prince wants to buy Evie from oh, yeah. O'Malley, right? Yes. And he he's, yeah. you know, he toys with it then and she's like all mad at him. And then he's like, oh, no, uh, you know, I'll think about it, right? Yeah. So the end of the movie, this great romance where he's decided O'Malley is not going to just walk away with his money. He goes back. He demands that Evie put his her arms around him and kiss him. They kiss. And the last line of the movie is, I should have sold you when I had the chance. Wow. Now, that is, that's, that's their, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Yeah, I should have sold you when I had the chance. Now, granted, it's, it's supposed to be, oh, he, he now cares for her and he, you know, wishes that maybe he hadn't, you know, but oh boy, does it. And look, I want to say this, I want to say this, which is that O'Malley is, I think, an objectively not good character. It is not Tom Selleck's performance. No. Without him, he is very char- – like, it would be ten times worse 
uh, if uh, if someone else had done this, because Tom Selleck really say salvages quite a bit. Yeah, no, I agree. And Bess, Bess, I think uh, the same thing. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I the, the actors. This is a case where the actors are not the problem. It is it, the problem is all in the script and in in the the direction. It just it does not work. The actors are fine. It's it's they are doing the best they can with bad material, and that's that's really all there is to that. Yeah, and they uh, and they need to like edit all of the air out of these scenes. Like, yeah. oh man, is this the the least snappiest editing you will ever see? I mean, honestly, I wish I liked High Road to China more than I did because I like the idea of the movie, and I think the story has a lot of potential, but it's just almost entirely unreal. Apparently, the novel is quite different. And I don't know. Maybe you can go back to basics and do a, a better version of that, uh, where you you, you know you, you just have character arcs and you get a sense of the of the travel. And and again, this is the first step on the, the, the road. We'll have a lot more movies that are, are kind of following in the wake of uh, of Indiana Jones in the weeks to come. I am really excited for some of the movies that we have coming up in this series. I think it is going to be a fascinating and fun one. Yeah, it's gonna knock your fedora off. <laughs> And that includes the film we'll be discussing next week when we are joined by Ryan from the New World Pictures podcast to discuss Treasure of the Four Crowns. It is a wild movie, and believe me, you you don't want to miss it. As always, thank you so much for listening. Again, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at GetMeAnotherPod. If you like the show... Please tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell that pretty girl in your archaeology class who keeps writing on her eyelids, and join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another.